For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. My guest today is Dr. Joyce Tildesley, Research Associate of the Manchester Museum. Joyce is an Egyptologist who specializes in prehistoric archaeology and the power of women in ancient Egypt. Joyce earned her PhD from Oxford University and has been a teaching Egyptologist for many years. Among Joyce's publications are Cleopatra, Last Queen of Egypt, Tutankhamun's Search for an Egyptian King, and most recently, Nefertiti's Face, the creation of an icon. Joyce's primary research has been on Egyptian historiography and the role of women in their society. To help me explain the power of Queen T and Queen Nefertiti, I asked Joyce if she might join us for a discussion about these two women. The interview you're about to hear is the first half of that discussion, in which we discuss the role of T, wife of Amunhotep III, mother of Akhenaten, and general badass. T was a significant power player during one of the most significant phases of Egyptian royal history. Without further ado, let me introduce Queen T first of all, and then get into the interview with Dr. Tildesley. Neb Ma'at Re, Amunhotep III, was dead. In his place, power came to his son, Amunhotep IV, later known as the King Akhenaten. This story is not really about Amunhotep or Amunhotep. Instead, it's about Queen T. Queen T, the legend herself, outlived her husband. When Neb Ma'at Re died, the great royal wife ascended to a new rank, one shared by many of her forebears. She became the Mut Nesut, king's mother, and in this new identity, she became synonymous with maternal deities like Hathor and Mut. While it probably didn't change her political power that much, this status shift may have been significant, particularly in the first years of her son's reign. Early on, we see Queen T accompanying Amunhotep IV when he conducts rituals for his late father. A few reliefs from the tomb of Keruwef show the queen assisting the young and new pharaoh. She stands behind him holding Sistra, apparently acting as a priestess. This is appropriate because the same images show Amunhotep IV making offerings to the gods Atum and Ra Horakti, supreme creator deities and central figures of the royal cult. T, as the mother of the king and the great royal wife, was one of the supreme priestesses of the land, and her role in these scenes is consistent with her power and that of the woman who came before her. 
Ti's prominence seems to be similar to the role her mother-in-law played during Amunhotep III's youth. Back when he first came to power, Neb Ma'at Re was guided by his own mother, Mut M. Weir. Then, when Ti arrived on the scene, Mut M. Weir took a step back from the public role. It seems that the king's mother would, when no actual queen was available, take on the role temporarily. Queen T does the same thing when her husband dies, and before Nefertiti arrives. So, after the death of her husband, T stepped into a new role. Guiding her son, she acted as his counterpart for the first couple of years. In these moments, T's status began to shift, and our discussion with Joyce Tildesley can now begin. Joyce, by the time of Amunhotep III in the early 14th century BCE, Egyptians had seen several powerful and influential women in the royal court. The most obvious example is Hatshepsut, of course, but we also had Amosa Nefertari, who was worshipped as a goddess at Deir el-Medina, and we had Queen Ahotep, who was the sort of formidable leader of the 17th dynasty royal family. But... After Hatshepsut, the royal women seem to take a bit of a step back in politics, and it's not clear whether this is a political or social or perhaps ideological backlash, but all of that seems to change with Queen T, who is very much front and centre in the royal iconography and very prominent. What is it about T that enabled her to buck this trend of invisible queens? Well, it's really interesting because I think we have to question the extent to which the other queens are atypically invisible and the extent to which she is atypically visible. She is married to a king. He rules for a long time. And he's also a king who's very much investing in statuary and inscriptions and so on. So he is more visible than his predecessors and she is more visible as well. But I think we can see also changes in Egypt. So I think it's quite easy, I think, to suggest that after Tuthmosis III, Royal women took a backward step because everyone had been scared by Hatshepsut and they wanted to, to make sure that the Queen stayed in her place. But we also have something else going on, is that we have a period where kings were not born to the Queen consort. They were born to secondary queens or, you know, ladies in the harem. And these ladies then do come to some sort of prominence, but they come to prominence during their son's reign rather than during the reign of, of their husband. So, for example, Amenhotep III's mother, Mutem Weir, is um, prominent, but she's prominent as part of his birth story. She's not prominent as part of her husband's reign in any way. So I think we have this mixture of things all going on. With Queen T, we have a queen who is, is prominent throughout her husband's reign and who also gives birth to, the, to the, the upcoming king. So I guess she's in a different position there for a start. It's the first time that's happened for, for quite a few years that she is going to be the queen mother as well as being the queen. And I think that probably makes a huge difference. But also Amenhotep himself is different because he lives a long time. He starts, I think, towards the end of his reign to believe that he is is different to other pharaohs, that he is, is semi-divine. He has his own birth story. Yeah, I know. I, mean, I, think, I guess if you live long enough, you kind of start to believe the propaganda, don't you? And, you know, it, it's that way. And she is his pair, so... As he increases in status, she does too. So obviously I don't think this would happen if she wasn't a worthy partner to him. But I think also it's the fact that, that he is, is surviving and doing these things 
but he's bringing her along with him as well. So, for example, when he wants to produce, um, you know, to demonstrate his divinity in Nubia, she gets elevated as well as, as his consort and so on. And I think it's all these things together that help her to, to really attain this role. But I think, I mean, this is probably a bit personal because I'm a huge admirer of Queen T, but it does seem that she's, it's, a, it's a role that she's really well able to fill. She seems to do really well as Queen. I agree. She's one of my personal favourites. Yeah, me too. If only, I think I think most notably for the the beautiful wooden, the wooden statue that seems to show such a degree of gravitas or strength of personality at least in her depiction absolutely and and that piece as well i think is really important because it's obviously it's tiny but it's obviously very much loved and it's modified and people keep changing it but they don't want to throw it away i think it really shows the regard to which queen t is held by the people who 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 sort of really revere that image of her Leading on from that then, perhaps, if we consider someone like Amos and Nefertari, who, along with Amunhotep I, was subsequently venerated as a, maybe you call them a demigod or a god within the community of Daryl Medina, we do see some continuity with Amunhotep III as a divine figure, at least during the Ramesid period. But to the best of my knowledge, and perhaps you can enlighten me here, do we see anything similar with T, or is her... Is her prominence and her religious role confined very much to her time? It's it's difficult to tell because certainly in Nubia she has a temple where she is she is sort of being worshipped, and that presumably would have gone on for longer. We also have images of her in the form of a goddess occasionally. Mm. It's very hard to tell who was being worshipped where. Sure. We know that Agnes Nefertari was. We can't say that T wasn't, but pieces like the little wooden head that you've mentioned suggest that perhaps she was that maybe her cult was surviving somewhere. And it's just really hard for us to tell. And this is the problem, trying to assess whether there's lack of evidence for something or whether it actually didn't happen. Mm. But the the fact that Amenhotep III seems very, very fond of projecting his own divinity, and obviously towards the end of his reign, he's he feels that he's getting more and more divine. Mm. And I think she's going along with him. But I think as long as his cult survived, I think hers would as well. Okay. As I understand it, the the wooden image was found at the harem in Gurob. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder if perhaps she might have been venerated there specifically as a you know as a patron figure for the community. I mean, I'm just purely speculating here, but if that's where the statue is found, that would probably be a good location for her to have an ongoing prominence and influence. Absolutely, it might be where she lived. I mean, we we have got evidence of her Atamana during her son's reign but we don't really know where she lived, whether she had a permanent home somewhere and travelled out occasionally. Yeah, there's no evidence that she lived permanently with her son Asamana, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm, I'm also curious to, I mean, I haven't found any evidence on this as to whether she lived at Gurob or at Malkata during her husband's reign. Depending on which scholar you you read, there's the perspective that um, Amunhotep III lived permanently at Malkata once it was finished, or... The other perspective that the pharaohs really did actually reside mostly near Memphis and only came down to Thebes for ceremonial occasions. I mean, I don't have a personal yeah. a personal opinion on exactly where they would have lived full time because, you know, to some degree it's conjectural and perhaps not that important. What's more important is the 
the administrative prominence of the various centres. Yeah, confusing it further. I mean, we know that Akhenaten intended to spend most of his time at Amarna, but it would be more usual for a pharaoh to move up and down the Nile, to keep on the move, presumably to remind people who he is, that he's there, that he's got his eye on people, and so on. So whether you, you can't really compare an ancient royal palace from Egypt to a royal palace today even, because there would have been constant movement as well. And it's, it's really hard to tell. The assumption is that the queen's consort stays with the king, but actually this isn't spelled out to us in any way. And presumably she had her own duties to perform as well. So it may well be that they were less together than we imagine that they were. Mm, that's a very, very interesting point. Yeah, I, I wish we knew more about Gurab and what happened there. It's obviously such a fascinating site, and yet we know so little. Yes, and it must have a cemetery, but but where are all these royal women? Yes, and we'll we'll touch on T physical legacy in a moment. So Queen T outlived Amenhotep III, and she wielded what seems to have been considerable influence, at least in the family or court politics. But also outside the family as well, because she's got she's mentioned in diplomatic correspondence, which must be quite rare. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. We do we get the impression from the Amana letters that foreign kings are connected with her as well and for my listeners just as a sort of preview you know one one particular um foreign ruler specifically requests that Akhenaten speak to Queen T because this king knows that she is greatly influential and will likely have some influence on the pharaoh with that being said it does seem that there are perhaps fewer images of Queen T at least monumental images during the reign of her son. You know, we don't seem to see her in the temple or the private reliefs at Amana. Do you have any assessment on what might be the reasons for this withdrawal? Is it part of the sort of the formality of there is now a new queen consort and the queen mother is withdrawn from the day-to-day business? Or do you think T herself may have been personally distant from the Amana revolution? What are your thoughts on this apparent disappearance or at least withdrawal? I I think it's important to remember that Amarna is a new city, so that all the art being commissioned there is new. We haven't got any of the old residual art from when T was a young queen and Amenhotep III was a young king. So that's all gone. So Akhenaten will be commissioning art at at a very high rate um, for his city, and he can't commission images of the gods because they would have been commissioned in the past, but they've all gone, really. There's only the Artin, and you can't have the Artin in the statue because it's not really going to work. Akhenaten thinks that the gods should be accessed through himself and his queen Nefertiti and his daughters. So they're going to be the ones who are predominantly in the art. So where it's distorted, I think, is that we have far more images of Akhenaten and Nefertiti than we have of any other king and queen. And that's making it look like we have less than we would expect from Queen T. Whereas, in fact, we have still a lot for Queen T compared to other queens. It's just that they are disproportionately in comparison to Akhenaten and Nefertiti. So I think a lot of it is to do with the purposes of the art that is being commissioned, that he wants the people, the elite, will try to access the art and by worshipping through or in front of Akhenaten and Nefertiti and not necessarily through Queen T. She's not necessarily a route to his god. And I think, I think that's what makes all the difference. Okay. Out of curiosity, um, what are your thoughts on the the sort of hypothesis, I guess you'd call it, maybe maybe it's coming into a theory, that the Artin is a 
a sort of extension of Amunhotep III's divinity or a, a new manifestation of that? It, it does seem to make a lot of sense um, because it's quite clear that the end of the reign of Amenhotep III, he himself is interested in solar worship. And it's also quite clear mm. that Akhenaten is interested in, in the god Shu and in the idea of obviously of sunlight and sort of a descent of, of power and religiousness. So it, it makes a lot of sense as, as if he is combining his worship of the son with his worship of the father. And that, of course, makes him even more divine himself. So I, to me, there's a lot of merit in that theory. It's something that's very difficult to prove, of course, but um, it does, it does, I think, have a lot to support it, yes. Okay. Spinning off from that, it's surprising, perhaps, that Queen T doesn't at least appear in her guise as Hathor within that context, because if we have Aten, who might refer to also as, you know, Raharakti, and we have Shu and Tefnut, it's it's interesting that we don't seem to have the Hathoric aspect um, manifesting. It's, it's almost like there's no role for her, isn't there? Mm. The, the, there's a sort of, it's a, it's, a, it's a pyramid with a father at the top and then two children. Mm. So it's very sort of old school solar yeah. religion. There is just, no room for, for a mother there. It just needs that little satellite pyramid. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, so maybe that's why. I, I don't know. Or maybe just when they settle to Marla, they say, okay, we need X numbers of statues and they're going to be like this. And they just decide that they're going to be the royal family and no one gives it a great deal of thought because T doesn't live there anyway. So it, it's not really that important. Um, we just don't know. This is easily one of those situations where further excavations at Memphis or Thebes might suddenly turn up a new a new Aten temple that happens to show Queen T either <laughs> attending to her son or, you know, in the um standing a couple of positions back like Mutem Weir used to do. So it is very much yes. one of those situations of more excavation is needed and maybe. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yes, yes. But obviously she is important to him, I feel. I, I, I say that without a great deal to back myself up, but <laughs> I do get the impression that she's, she is important to him because she does appear at Amarna. Yes. We know she appears there. So it's not like that she's completely ruled out of his life or anything. No. Um, it's just that in this formal art, there doesn't seem to be a role for her. Mm. I, would one, I would wonder how, what her personal feelings were on all of this. It would be very interesting to have a, have a sit-down conversation with her. Oh, absolutely. And also, of course, remembering that obviously we forget this, but I don't think she would, is that he's not the son who was intended to inherit the throne. There was an older brother mm. who died. Mm. And, yes. you know, what she would have felt about that as well, I don't know. It, it's, a, it's a really difficult situation, isn't it? It's, it's not uncommon in ancient Egypt. But if Tuth a, as far as I can tell, it's more common than not. Yes, yes, yes. But if, if Tuthmosis had mm. succeeded to the throne, things might have been very different. Um, unless mm. they both have the same inclination towards solar religion, I don't know. Mm. They were all mad, perhaps. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think mad is a bit harsh. <laughs> different. I'm yeah, I'm being facetious. <laughs> yeah. It's possible that the mummy of Queen T herself does survive in the form of the KV thirty five elder lady yeah now personally i i don't accept the genetic study as proof positive yet no i think um the the objections that were raised to that were so compelling that we really have to basically do several more studies i think 
before any kind of historical conclusions can be drawn. I agree. I agree. Leaving aside the genetic question, what is your perspective on the identification of this mummy? Do you think um, do you think it's more likely to be Queen T, or is it perhaps someone else who's been who's been mis misinterpreted or mislabeled? I think it's possible that it's T. The signs from KV fifty five, a tomb that was used as a storage tomb, that probably T's burial was was placed in there and sort of reconstructed and then put somewhere in the Valley of the Kings. I don't know where she died. She might have died at Amarna and been buried at Amarna, or she might have died somewhere else. But we find elements of her burial have been have passed through this storage tomb. And so it seems likely that her mummy did as well. So it seems likely that her mummy was some some place in the Valley of the Kings and possibly reburied in her husband's tomb. We don't know. So having said that, she must she might, she probably was buried somewhere in the Valley of the Kings at one point. It could well be that that is her. But like you, I have a lot of doubts about the actual DNA analysis um, and the interpretation of it. I think it's too early to tell. The technique is too young and there are, there are flaws in it. The suggestion that this is T is based on the fact that there's a lock of hair in Tutankhamun's tomb that, that's labelled, which, which appears to belong to this mummy. And that, that seems to me to be better proof, although I'm not a scientist, but as I understand it, that's the case. That seems to be a more clear-cut sort of proof than the more complicated and difficult DNA analysis that has tried to identify all the other bodies. So I, I would be okay with that, I think. Mm, I would I would too. Do you see personally any resemblance between that mummy and the the images that survive of tea? Um, no, not particularly, but I wouldn't expect to because a, mm. an Egyptian image isn't a portrait. No. Is it? it's, it's, it's a depiction of, of status and power and, and what you want to put over to the people who are looking at the image. So she needn't necessarily have looked like her images. And in fact, if you look at images of tea, she looks very different. In, in, in many of them, so it's really mm. hard to tell what she looked like from those, which didn't really matter because if she was wearing, say if she was wearing the right regalia or she was labelled, it really, really wouldn't matter what she looked like because people would know it was tea anyway. So I don't think we can ever do this sort of matching mm. up. I know people have said things about mummies having a, a regal look about them, so they must be royal. But I, I really don't think you can do that. <laughs> no, I think that's uh, the emotion influencing the assessment. Yeah, yeah. The wooden statue does seem to be at least less idealized than your average. And, you know, I wouldn't be the first to wonder if that is closer to an accurate portrait of the Queen. I personally don't see any resemblance between her her monumental images and that mummy, but again, we wouldn't expect to. But that, the small wooden statue, I mean, if you squint, maybe, maybe it. Maybe it's the same person. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. I do agree with you because it's not so stereotypically bland. Um, it looks like a real woman, that possibly it is a real woman. It is it's actually a portrait. And it's interesting, we get the same thing with Nefertiti later on. We get more womanly-like portraits of Nefertiti with lines and so on as she gets older. They, they to us, look more like realistic mm. images of a woman rather than the stereotypical queen. Mm. And there is, at least in the sort of surface level assessment of the Amana art, one one word you often hear thrown about is a, f a form of naturalism, which there's plenty of caveats to that yes. in the Egyptological perspective. But it is, I mean, it is at least possible or plausible that 
this image that we this wooden image we see of T is one commissioned either very late in the reign of Amunhotep the third or even early in the reign of yes. Akhenaten and may depict her in those sort of the waning years of her life when she is a venerable elder lady, as it were. Yes, but... yes, that's, that's what I, I, I always think this, that it's not by accident she's being depicted this way. She could always, if she wanted to, be depicted as a, as a bland, stereotypical young woman. Mm. So if she's chosen to be depicted that way, as much more realistic, wrinkled, elderly, I think she's doing it for a purpose. And I think we have to be careful not to put modern interpretations on it and not to suggest that being older and wrinkled for a woman is a bad thing. It might be that having reached this stage of being a venerable older woman is seen as a very good thing indeed. And it's maybe marking her, her progression almost onto a different level of, of you know, of, of knowledge and so on that's being respected. Well, I would absolutely agree. I mean, many, many pre-industrial societies hold the elders as of much higher status than anyone. And if we look at a, con a somewhat contemporary figure like Amunhotep, the son of Hapu, he was extremely proud of the great age that he had achieved, and he was hoping to achieve even more. So I absolutely agree with you. I think if, if anything, as she aged, her status and, you might say, dignity could only increase. Yes, yes, that's that's exactly what I think is happening here. Um, sometimes when people comment on it, we forget that being old in ancient Egypt was a thing really to be proud of because so few people managed to do it. Mm, you know, may I may I reach 110 years? Absolutely, yes, yes. That brings us to the end of part one of my interview with Dr. Tildesley. The second half focused on Queen Nefertiti, a lady whom we have not introduced in the narrative yet, and it wouldn't be appropriate to talk about just yet. Next episode, we begin the reign of Amunhotep IV, later known as Akhenaten. We introduce the king during his youth, and see how he conducted himself during his first year on the throne. Then, we get to introduce Nefertiti herself, and the interview with Dr. Tildesley can continue in part two. Join me soon for episode 108, in which we examine the first year of Amunhotep IV. Oh, and one more thing. Unfortunately, the interview was long enough that there is an automated advertisement thanks to Acast. Rather than interrupt the discussion with that, I'm placing it here, along with a few minutes of music afterwards. If you feel like supporting the show, it would be great to listen to the ad and then the music at the end. If not, feel free to drop out here. The music is by Derek and Brandon Feichter, who generously allow me to use their songs on the podcast. I've placed a link to their website on the episode's description. Consider visiting it. They have some wonderful albums with some excellent ambient music. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.
with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.